you're listening to Coffee Break with New York Wiki. I'm your host, Julie Hakeiser-Ilkovich. Today we're here with Neha Gandhi from Refinery29. Neha, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So first things first, tell us what you do, what your job is here at Refinery. So I am the SVP of Content Strategy and Innovation here at Refinery, which is a very long title that essentially means um, I head up all of the groups that sort of touch our audience, which means our email production, our social programming strategy, our content strategy, our search teams, our partnerships that work with other publishers, and then um, our Content Insights group, which is really the nucleus of that group. It fuels everything that we do, and it really they create the feedback loop of how we work. So it's how do we grow our audience, how do we deepen our consumption and our loyalty and retention, and think about all those things in a way that also serves our brand. So you're just wearing a few a few hats. <laughs> just a couple. Just a few. We're recording this in the morning, and we're, all, we're always talking about coffee, but I think it feels particularly appropriate now. What is your coffee drink of choice? So my coffee drink of choice is a grande non-fat latte with an extra shot. Um, I feel like there is like an endless capacity for me to consume more caffeine. So I like the extra shot. Like, we do not have enough caffeine in that big coffee. You know what I don't like the taste of milk that oh. much. So I want the latte, but I also don't want it to taste like milk. You just you use the milk as a way to just get more coffee into your into your system. That's great. We um. We're not drinking lattes, though, this morning, unfortunately. Not your favorite. No, not my favorite. This is uh, coffee from our kitchen. <laughs> no, not. We're just I'll drinking the office <laughs> coffee today. I want to talk about the steps in your career you took prior to being at Refinery29. What was your college major? What were your internships? How did you kind of get here? Um, so I went to Princeton University, uh, which is a wonderful liberal arts school, uh, but also not a school that has things like a journalism program. I think that they really think about your education as being about learning how to think, learning about the world around you, which was an incredible luxury and a privilege. Um, but it also meant that it took me a while to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. Um, And I started thinking about that probably later than a lot of other people. So I was in college, I majored in English, I um, minored in American Studies, I got a certificate in French language and literature, I was sort of all over the place, which I think ended up being a great thing. It meant that when I was looking at internships, I wasn't thinking about what, like, what's the big goal that I'm working toward immediately, it was more about what do I want to do? And it was like process of elimination internships. Mm-hmm. So I worked for a nonprofit. I worked for my congressman. I worked for um, Dress for Success. Like I did all these like micro internships. I studied abroad in Paris for a semester. Um, and then I interned at People Magazine one summer and I loved it. And I knew from some of the other internships I'd done that I did not love them. Um, and I was just, I was still trying to figure it out. So I love that experience of people. Um, you know, I got to work on the digital side, I got to do some fact-checking for the print side, I got to interview Donald Trump when he was <laughs> launching The Apprentice. That's amazing. I had no idea what did you know? from. But it was, it was incredible. Um, and I took that experience and I went into my senior year of college and I 
thought, well, I liked that. Is that what I want to do? But I didn't have the same kind of internship experience or focus that most people wanting to go into magazines mm-hmm. at that time. And it really was magazines. It wasn't digital. Um, I wanted to work in a print magazine. Did you feel like you had a disadvantage? Meaning there are so many young women who like go to journalism school and go, go, go with internships, which I don't personally always necessarily think is the best choice. I like the idea of like figuring out what you want to do and not being stressed about your career when you're 18 years old. I think it doesn't make a huge difference, obviously, in the long run. But at the time, did you see the other people you were interning with and they were like, had done 20 magazine internships? Definitely. I think looking backwards, I wouldn't change any of it. I think that it made me a better rounded person. I think it made me more sure of the choices that I ultimately made. But back then, I was worried that I was never going to get a job. Right. So I took an, I took a paid internship um, that paid by the hour at InStyle when I got out of school. Um, and I did that for probably six months or so. I went from there into an editorial assistant role um, that was also freelance. I hadn't like gotten my first staff job yet at um, Meredith, which is incredible because at the time they were really sort of leading the pack in terms mm-hmm. of digital. So I worked at Ladies Home Journal and Moore's websites for probably six months again. And that was interesting because their senior beauty and fashion editor was going on maternity leave. And so they were like, hey, editorial assistant, do you want to cover for this woman? And I was like, <laughs> what? <laughs> I would love that. Um, wow. I went through a job, and it was just, you know, like, they probably didn't have the funds to bring in maternity cover. I was cheap, and I was eager to do the job. Right. And I got probably the experience of a lifetime. I learned how to edit there. I learned how to assign, like, that. not even just, like, the craft of the work, like, the actual mechanical pieces of how do you write an assignment letter. Those are things I didn't know, and that was a job where I picked them up probably much faster than I would have in taking a different path. And then she came back from maternity leave and they're like, you don't really want to go back to being an editorial assistant, do you? Um, So they actually were really generous and helpful and helped me find my next opportunity, which was at Harper's Bazaar. And I was there for probably four years and I did, I wore a series of different hats. And I think that the interesting thing about a place, um, especially at a print magazine at a corporate publisher is that you, you don't get a job unless someone else leaves a job. And then you don't get promoted unless someone else leaves a job. So you're really just like, you get your foot in the door and you hope someone leaves if you're in a freelance role so you can come on staff. And then you do that job until someone else leaves. So it's less about sort of proving your value, which you certainly have to keep doing, but it is also a waiting game just right. to figure out how do you move up? How do you find the next opportunity? And I think that that's probably a little bit less true today than it was when I was um, in some of those jobs. But, you know, I got to do a bunch of different things there. I assisted the managing editor, I assisted the executive editor and the deputy editor, and I did everything from personal errands to making tea to fetching dry cleaning to assigning letters to helping to ghostwrite edits on like big name writers um, where maybe they hadn't turned around copy that we loved and pitching ideas and working on the table of contents and the contributors pages and I learned how to you know take a magazine page and produce it from like a first draft to going through the copy flow and getting 
produced as a layout. Um, I made all the minis that went on our editor-in-chief's wall of the magazine every day. So every day I would go in and take the book with all the layouts and reprint them and cut them into small pieces and paste them onto cardboard and put them in her office, which I don't know if magazine editors do that anymore, <laughs> but I hope they do. <laughs> I was like, this is the, gl- <laughs> the glamour days of magazines. As much as making mini covers doesn't yep. sound like it, it really, it really was the job to have. And is that where you started learning about digital? It was. So I was also, weirdly enough, uh, in that job, the online editor of Harper's Bazaar, which was a very different job from, um, I think, what that job probably looks like today, right today. And certainly what an online editor job looks like today. Um, it was... It involved updating the website twice a month. Um, when I first started doing that job, it actually involved producing the copy and pulling it all together and re-editing and repackaging some of the things from the website and putting them on CD-ROM and taking them down to a different floor in the building where someone hard-coded the website. Um, so it was a different time. <laughs> well, it's interesting. and I, I mean, some of the people who listen to this podcast know this, some of them don't, but digital used to be like the way to get into a magazine. Like yeah. it was the least desirable job. I was like, oh, just give it, give it to Neha to do the, the website where now it's so competitive to get on the digital side. So a lot of people, you know, probably our age got into digital. I know I did. And it was just like, I don't want to say it was easy, but it was like, if you were willing to do it, there weren't as many people who were willing to do it. And if you were excited about it, that was a big deal. Totally. And it also still felt a little bit like, the redheaded stepchild yes. of publishing, and I was like, when I was doing that job, I was like, make sure like you're still like really working on your print right. responsibilities, and you're getting your next print job because like you want to be stuck in digital forever. Like a shiny job to have was working on the print side, and I didn't want to miss that. I also didn't know that there was probably a shorter time frame where it was going to be. I, I, I didn't have the crystal ball at that right. time. Right? Who who could have known? I mean, and everyone was just treating it like it was not. It was. It was something you had to have. A web, you had to have a magazine website, but it wasn't that important. It was a marketing tool. Right. It was not a place to actually deliver great content and right. engage with an audience in a meaningful way. Sell magazine through the website, like get the yeah. subscriptions. Yeah. Oh, man. A, a little bit has changed. <laughs> a little bit. Just a little bit. But yeah, so I, I was in that job for a long time, and then I um, moved over to 17 where I met you. I love it. This, this podcast <laughs> is often... The who's who of Julie's life, like people who have, we've all worked at 17 together and gone different ways. Um, I always say I called in all my favors for the podcast to get all my, all my friends and coworkers here, but that is where we met at 17 and you started, what was your first job there? Uh, my first job there was associate lifestyle editor um, and the managing editor, one of the managing editors I had assisted at Bazaar moved over to 17 and I had gone to him being like, no one's ever going to leave the next job. I'm never going to get promoted here. And he was like, I have a job for you. Amazing. And he brought me on um, and it was amazing. I got my own pages for the first time. It wasn't just working on other people's pages or pitching ideas that someone else was going to execute. Um, it was, I was in charge of all of the lifestyle pages, which we rebranded as the weekend section during my time there. And then I wrote all the copy for the fashion pages, both the service copy at the front of the book and then just sort of the um, captions and like the more fun headlines in the center of the book. So it was a lot of pages with not that much text. (laughs) But it was a lot of fun. It was where I learned how to really conceive of 
full packages. Um, it was where I learned to be edited in a completely different way. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a, it was it was where I got the foundation of my real editing and writing and assigning skills. Um, and I was in that job for a while, and then I started taking on some of the entertainment coverage, and then, um, I don't know what happened from there, I think from there I moved over to the website. It was like, I think we started working <laughs> together, I think you, you came to the website. Yes, which was so much fun, and it was, um, I think Seventeen was also ahead of the pack in yeah. a lot of ways, which it had to be because you're talking to teenagers, I think that you can't really be behind the curve when you're talking to the next generation. Right, and they were there, like, they, they were there. And they were online, and we had a really robust web presence and a really well-organized operation that ran and functioned by itself, but also really was part of what the magazine was doing. But it wasn't just a place to dump, you know, so-and-so's coming in, like, let's do this interview there, like, or, like, we have, we owe this person a favor, let's put it on the website, which is what it was in a lot of other places. But it was a place to really, like, we got to figure out what our audience wanted and think about, you know, some celebrities that work on the website maybe don't work on um, the in the print magazine. I think that it's also like, it was the first place where I really was producing consistent content and able to assign consistent content that I was getting an immediate feedback loop on in that way. And we got to do some really cool interviews with uh, celebrities who are huge now. We had Justin Bieber come to the office probably a thousand times. <laughs> he was like eight probably right. started. <laughs> but that was another great thing about working at the web and teen magazines was like you could and you know, you kind of reference this, you could just like test people out. Mm-hmm. The non-permanence of it, especially for teen stars, it's like you kind of know who's famous in the adult celeb world usually. But with teens, it's like as they're growing and changing, like investing a cover in a 14-year-old Taylor Swift is a lot of investment versus let's test her out online and see if she yeah if she'll be big we we we, we totally sure. call that we totally <laughs> call that. Did, was it a strategic move to go to digital like did you think of that as like oh this is what I want my career to be or was it really just like the next step of you know what was available what was interesting it was I've never been someone who's been able to map out two steps from now for when I think about what my career looks like. I've always been able to say, this is probably like the skill gap that I might have right now. And this is something that feels like a bigger opportunity, a place where I can essentially grow and learn and contribute something more. Um, And that was what that opportunity was. It was a place where I could flex my skills and some new muscles that I hadn't been using. It was a place where I could write a little bit more and have a little bit more freedom to try new ideas and that was all really exciting but it wasn't a calculated move and that I was like I want to be at this place next so I'm going to make this step Mm -hmm. um it was really just the job that felt interesting right and I, I think that's great and just in terms of like career advice especially in media where it's changing so much like I just think it leads to a world of disappointment if you're like this is the end goal because think about all the young women who 10 years ago, 15 years ago, we're like, I'm going to be the editor-in-chief of a magazine. There's just not that many jobs there. There's a lot of equivalent to that kind of job, but it's just like, you know, it sets you up to be like, almost not for failure, but to feel like a failure if you don't get it, where it's it might just be not possible in the long run. Yeah, and the thing that I tell all the younger people on my team is, tell me what you want to learn. Tell me the skills you want to acquire in the next 
six months, nine months, 12 months. Don't tell me what you want to be in five years or 10 years because the job that you want in five years probably doesn't exist right. today. This landscape is changing so quickly that you're not just setting yourself up for failure. You're also setting yourself up to potentially shoot short of what the real thing is right. that you're going to want because yeah. you don't know yet. That job doesn't exist. So keep your eyes open and continue to learn at every turn rather than saying, you know, I have to be laser focused on this one thing. No, I think that's I think that's great advice. I think the way you did it, I mean, obviously, was very worked and was very <laughs> successful. But it is it's just like looking at the next step. I think the skill gap point is so important. Of like, you know, a lot of people get very bored in their jobs, and I think that comes from like not learning new things. And so, focusing on like actually learning and looking for jobs where you'll obtain new skills that will help you in the long run is. I don't think everyone thinks about that when they're looking for a job. You have like you have. Fewer choices, I think, at the start of your career, just because you really want the next job. You want all of these things. And I, I definitely felt this. Like, So you just want to take something that feels like a step forward, because otherwise there's this sort of paralyzing fear of getting stuck. I'm going to be in this job forever, and what if I'm an associate editor for the rest of my life? Um, Has that ever happened? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that that's ever happened. I don't think so either, but I'd love to know. Email me if you're an associate yeah. editor for 30 plus years. After 17, you were there for a while. How long were you there for? I was there all in for almost five years. Yeah, which is a long time for a media (laughs) job, for sure. And did you come to Refinery29 from 17? I did. I actually cold applied to a job listing on the Refinery29 website. This was at a time where, actually, we should still do this. Um, I'm going to bring this policy back. But we used to post all of our job listings as like blog posts on oh, our homepage. Genius. Which I saw it because I read the website every day. I was like a super fan of the brand, but it was smaller back then. And I was like, this would be the dream job. It was a listing for a deputy editor. It felt like a stretch for me. I was going to get to do some cool stuff. I was also just going to get to tackle new challenges in a new environment. I had, I had always worked for corporate publishers mm-hmm. and this felt like a leap. So I was like, I canceled dinner plans with my friends. I was like working on my perfect email that I wanted to send <laughs> to our editor in chief. That was the email address that was like listed wow. on the job listing, by the way. So I was like, okay, like crafting my email, pulling my like updating my resume, and I sent it through to her in the evening on a Wednesday or something. And on Thursday morning, she gets back to me at seven a.m. and she's like, "I'd love for you to come in today." Oh my gosh! And I was like, "Oh my god." <laughs> And I came in, and I remember very clearly, like, I'd been on a lot of job interviews at that point. Not even at that time, but, you know, over the course of my career, I'd been on job interviews. I wasn't the kind of person who got nervous, but this felt special. Mm -hmm. So I was sitting at a table um, with her. We were just talking, and I remember my leg was shaking. I was like, that never happens. Like, that's not a nervous tick that I have, but it was just, like, this, like, crazy manifestation of all of the nervous energy inside of me. (laughs) But I played it cool. I told her, you know, everything that was true about why I wanted this job, what the skills were that I had, what I felt like we could accomplish together. And she brought me in to meet with um, the three other co-founders of the company. And ultimately, I got the job. And I came here, and we were a fairly small editorial team. We were probably, I don't know, eight to ten people, maybe less than that. Um, wow. Hard to remember, but we were probably 40 people at the company. Um, and now we're like 450-some people. Oh, my gosh. 
So it's crazy to think back. It was it was a really fun time. It was a time where we were really figuring out like what are the processes we're going to put in place? How do we edit ourselves? How do we refine our voice? And I think that the brand ethos was always there. The idea of sort of at that time we were really focused on fashion and we're starting to think about beauty, but it was really about creativity and personal style. How can you set your self-expression free? Um, and that has been at the core of our DNA forever. And we've expanded from there, we, you know, listened to the signals our audience has sent us and thought about, okay, we're going to add beauty content. We're going to add some home content because you express yourself through your space as well as your outfit and your hair. Um, and then we added entertainment content because our audience is telling us they wanted some of that. And we added news content, we added wellness content, and now we really cover what we consider to be the full sort of span of all the things women talk about and think about, and people talk about and think about, but we're telling those stories through the lens of women. Mm -hmm. But ultimately that idea of fearlessly being yourself, of expressing who you are, of being inclusive and positive, those threads are still there, and it's been really fun to be able to evolve that. What was it like coming from big media companies to essentially a start? I mean, at the time it was a startup. What were some of the pros and cons? I think a lot of people are very scared to make that leap because it's so comfortable. Um, and I've done something similar, like leaving the big media world. What were what were some of the things that were great about it? What were some of the things that you maybe don't miss, but that you could see the advantages of like big companies? I, the thing I was most worried about was lack of um, processes and lack of resources. You have fewer people, you're scrappier. I mean, I've never worked harder than those first couple of years when I came here. And I've always been a person who works hard. It's like, you know, I, I used to think, this is a little bit of a tangent, I used to think, you know, it's the job. That's the reason I'm working so hard. Mm -hmm. That's the reason I'm working so many hours. And I think at some point in your career, you realize it's actually not the job. It's you. There's a way to do the job that involves working fewer hours, and that's not necessarily my, that's, that's just not my way of working. Mm -hmm. I think that I want to take jobs that I get really excited about, that I'm, you know, eager to come in every day and do the work, and at 17, it was always about the audience. I was so excited to talk to them here. It was about the audience, but it was also about building something that I was so passionate about. It was about talking to an audience that felt like myself, and I hadn't really done that before. And it was about the people and the team that we ended up building. The thing about st startup culture is that you get to wear every hat that you want to. And that's why my job looks like it does today. It's not a traditional sort of set of responsibilities, mm -hmm. but it was ultimately the set of responsibilities that we decided made the most sense for my skill set and also made the most sense for what our business needed at the time. And I think that you don't get to make those kinds of leaps and choices when you're in a more corporate setting where everyone already has their swim lanes and knows what they're doing. You can't really say, I would also like to do that job over there because someone else is doing it. <laughs> Someone's job and there's a specific description and there's a specific level of pay and all yeah. of that. What's your number one piece of advice for women who are looking to move up within the company that they're already working for? Add value. I think mean, that's at the heart of it, but I think that that's also something that's a little bit different from put your head down and work as hard as you can. I think there are definitely moments to put your head down and work as hard as you can. But to me, the people who really are able to quickly advance where you're, you see the value that they add beyond just the job that they're asked to do 
is the people who look around and say, hey, I see a problem over there. How can I solve it? I see that there is a gap and something that we could do but don't do. I have this idea. Can I take that on? So it's a little bit of, you know, you have to be excellent at the job that you're already doing, but how are you going above and beyond? How are you, and this is great advice that I feel like I've gotten from a couple of mentors and bosses over the years, you have to do the job that you want to get promoted into before you get promoted into it. There isn't an opportunity for you to say, hey, I'm doing a great job at the job I'm already in. Can I please have a different one? You have to prove to someone that you're the right bet to place. And I think that that comes from just looking around, being aware of like what the needs of the company are, and figuring out how you can fill gaps. As a manager yourself, you have people that you're managing. When do you kind of think is an appropriate time to have to start having that conversation about wanting to have a raise? Like the people who work for you, when do you generally think like this is too early? I think that a lot of what we run into is like. You're at a job six months and you feel really comfortable and then you're like, okay, I'm ready for the next step. But what's kind of the, the sweet spot if there even is one? I think it varies by situation, but what I tell people when they come in the door is that we have, you know, a biannual um, or rather semi-annual review process. Our, we have a quarterly review process, but we have a semi-annual process within which we look at titles and raises. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that you get a title bump and a raise every six months, but it means that you have an opportunity to raise that conversation at that time. I think if you haven't been doing a job for a year, it's not the right time. That to me is the bare minimum. There are always exceptions to that rule. There are moments where, you know, you've been in a job for eight months and someone leaves and you take on and absorb all of their responsibilities. At the nine, 10, 11 month mark, you're probably going to say, hey, I'm ready for that job. Don't hire someone else. I can do both. Or I can at least do the more senior job and let's bring in someone to support me. So that's not a hard and fast rule, but I do think in general, you need to have done a job for a year before you're ready to say, hey, I want more. And I think it's great advice to just know, like, you know here what those kind of moments are, like, in your own job to know what's the reality of when you can even get a race. Because I think at most companies, there's only certain openings. Exactly. Like, I think that that's the first step as someone who's asking for more. And I mean, I'm a big proponent of women, especially asking for more. I'm always thrilled when the women on my team and my team is largely women. Um, and it's also a lot of women who haven't worked in other places. I think that there are some senior people certainly on the team, but there are a lot of people where they're learning how to negotiate the workplace here. And I'm always thrilled, even when I can't give them what they're asking for, when they come to me and say, hey, I got this, but actually I want this. And here is why. Here are the things that I have done to earn this next step. And here is the value I'm going to continue to add hold me accountable to these additional goals um, and look at this value that I've added and created. That to me is the best feeling because I think that that is a training I want to make sure every woman and man on my team has in terms of making sure that they can ask for the things that they deserve and continue to push forward in their careers. It starts before all of that with knowing what's the framework inside of this company? When should I ask? So if our race cycle is pegged to a review that happens in November or December or whenever, then you know that probably a month prior, you want to be very clear in your own mind about, okay, this is the case I want to make, and then broach the topic in a one-on-one with your manager and say, hey, I know that we're coming upon this time and I'm preparing for that, but I wanted to share with you some ideas that I had for my own personal development and I would love your feedback. Mm -hmm. Um, Because then you're 
putting that idea, you're planting the seed, but you're also doing it in a way that's respectful of um, what the company is able to do and what the frameworks are that are in place. Because in most cases, a manager's hands are tied as well. Um, there are very few cases, and I think that working at a company like this one, where you know we have clear frame, frameworks in place, but we do still have some of the bones of a startup. You're mm-hmm. able to sort of influence change um, that's outside of the strict rigor of a framework of when we get promotions and raises. But my, my main point is um, know the framework and know that sometimes your manager's hands are going to be tied. So you want to ask for what you want, but you want to do it in a way where you're basically handing that person everything they need to make a case to get you what you need. Um, because it's very rare that the buck stops there. It's really important because we do talk a lot about like coming into your you know reviews with a or not even a review the meeting where you want to ask for a raise the list of things that you've been doing above and beyond and why you deserve it. But we don't really talk that much about the timing, which I think is a really good point. Like if it's bad timing, they're going to say no, and there's nothing you can really do about it. So like doing your due diligence to understand what's good timing and what's bad timing from a company perspective, from your manager's perspective, like, I think it's, I think that's really something to pay attention to. Absolutely. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's an extension of the idea of knowing your audience, right? Knowing the environment in which you're working. Yeah. The company that you work for, Refinery29, it's mostly women who work here. Yeah. There are definitely a lot of women, well, more than 50% women. I'd have to love to get you the demographic <laughs> breakdown, but you know, this is, there are a lot of powerful women here. There are a lot of creative women here. There are a lot of strategic women here. And I think it's, Wonderful. I love working in an environment where I'm perpetually inspired by seeing all the things that women and men can do. But I think that there are some things that are really special about a workplace um, that is largely women. You know, when I look around at my team, that's the thing that I love best about, and not just my team, but when I look around at the people here, that's the thing that I love best about coming to work every day. Mm-hmm. That's the thing that gets me out of bed in the morning. It's that we really do have what I think is the most creative, most inspired, hardest working team in the industry. These are some of the best people out there, and that is incredible to be part of. And I think, um, you know, there are management practices that I have that I think are very distinctly, like, female, Mm -hmm. and I'm using air quotations here. It's something that I think about a lot. It, because I think the traditional advice that we always give women in the workplace is do X, Y, and Z things that your male counterparts would do, and that's how you get ahead. And I think some of those things are totally valid. I think ask for the things that you want. Be direct. Don't couch your feedback in platitudes. All those things are really valid pieces of advice, but at the same time, I think that there is something I've, I've had a manager previously refer to it as, uh, like, your leadership style is a little bit mothering, and I think that person at the time probably didn't mean it as a compliment. Right. Is, that, is that negative? Um, <laughs> like, that sounds like they were saying it negative to me. That's like, that sounds lovely. That's yeah. a great leadership style. But I actually think that it's something that makes me great at what I do. I think that I'm a good judge of character. I read people well, and I think that morale on my team is incredibly high, as is efficiency, as is the work that they're doing. Things work, and people are happy to do that work because I spend a lot of my time thinking about are people doing the jobs that are best for them? Are people happy? Are people getting value out of the jobs that they're doing in addition to providing and creating value for the company? And I think that 
it's not to say that men don't ever think that way, but I do think that that is a traditionally female trait mm-hmm. that has served me well in the workplace. And I think that I see instances of not just that, but other sort of um, traditionally female traits in the workplace that I think are wonderful. I think it brings diversity of ideas. It brings a diversity of experiences to the space and to our leadership team, especially. I love looking around our executive team and seeing how many strong, powerful women are in those roles, really driving the future of this company forward. I love that we have four founders, two of whom are male, two of whom are female. And I think that they're, they all bring so many different ideas and points of view to the table. In the conversation, like the career advice conversation, the conversation around careers, I like a shift and we see it a little, but not a ton from like, think like a man, manage like a man. I know we've talked about this in the podcast before to, you know, there's different types of management, but it's not necessarily like if I'm to manage one way, I'm managing like a man. Like I met just a woman who manages strongly or, you know, asks for what I want or is direct. And I like what you're saying of just like, it is just about like diversity and different personality types. It's not just like you're a man or you're a woman and this is how you manage. What about all that gray area? What about all those different ways of thinking? I mean, one of my favorite series that I worked on here in my time at Refinery, we published probably two or three years ago. It was called Superwoman. And I got to, amongst some other people, I got to interview all of these incredible women from um, Deborah Spar, the president of Barner, to Jenny Connor, the co-creator and executive producer of Girls, um, to Wendy Williams, to a bunch of other ladies that were so cool. Um, and I, one of the pieces of advice was this bit from Jenny Connor, who was so forthcoming and honest and just full of life in a way that I loved. Um, but she was like, look, I cry at work sometimes. They always tell you not to cry at work. And I think that that's a polarizing issue. Um, there are certainly moments where it's not appropriate right. to cry at work. But also, I think her larger point was that she wasn't interested in sort of suppressing her like traditionally female qualities in order to get ahead. She felt that she was doing better work because there was an emotional connection that she had to her work. And I think that that's so powerful to be able to acknowledge that and to say, okay, this is who I am. This is how I work best. And I'm going to channel that and get the most out of it rather than I'm going to suppress all these qualities of mine that feel too female. It's really interesting. Crying at work is like the most polarizing issue. <laughs> so true. <laughs> like, everyone has opinions. Um, if you should, if you shouldn't, but and, and showing emotion and everything. It's it's really interesting. I mean, it's a conversation. No one no one's figured out because everyone has opinions on it. Depends who your boss is, I guess, how they feel about it. Very true. We're gonna go to our classically annoying interview questions now. This is where we ask you questions that you would traditionally get in an interview or um, may you might even ask these in interviews, but kind of questions we're, we're learning as like just the interview process progresses. Like, are there really points to these? Like, why are you asking them? They're things we've always, always asked. And so I'm going to ask you these questions. You can answer them as if you're doing an interview, okay. what the what the answer would be that you would give, but then if you want to give your real answer too, um, you're welcome to. You don't have to. So the first classically annoying interview question is, what is your biggest weakness? This is a big one. Like you always get this in, in an interview, right? Always. 
so can I lead with the answer that I absolutely think you should not get to this question? <laughs> that, this, I would love that. That would be very, very, very helpful. It, and this is like such like a cliche answer, but like I'm just too much of a perfectionist. <laughs> Don't ever give that answer. That's a, that's a ridiculous <laughs> Too answer. organized. Too much of a perfectionist. Work too hard. Yeah, exactly. Um, because it also, like if that's like a weakness, like lot, like then that's suddenly something like, I want you to work hard. I don't want you to think that's a bad thing. I want you to be a perfectionist. Like, that's not a great answer. I think that this question isn't the best question, but it also is an opportunity to share something you want to, a space where you want to grow, something you want to learn. I think it doesn't have to be answered verbatim. I think the best thing I ever learned um, from a media trainer was you don't have to answer all the questions people that they ask, ask you, whether that's in an interview or anywhere, you can go into a conversation prepared with the things you want to say and sort of wrap them around the questions that you're asked. So to me, what's your biggest weakness? I would answer with, you know, something that I really want to learn in the next phase of my career and in my next opportunity is whatever. Um, I'm not going to tell you, yeah. but... <laughs> We're not going to get it here. It's exclusive. But it is, it, it's a really interesting point. Like, you don't actually have to say a weakness. Right. Like, you know, to be like... It doesn't have to be so negative. It's just an opportunity. Right. right. And, it, I mean, these are the kind of questions you want to be prepared for because they're going to ask them. But I do like the idea of not having then, like, a total cliche answer of, I'm so organized. Here's what I want to learn. Is It's a great answer. And that will probably derail the interview anyway, and they'll forget what they even asked. Right. So you can you can move on to the next thing. Where do you see yourself five years from now? So this is another one that I actually encourage people when I interview them not to think about this. Um, I think we might have touched on this before, but I'll say it again because I think it's important. Um, Especially working in media, the landscape is shifting around us. I feel like in a lot of cases, building a media company feels a little bit like building a house of straw on a foundation of quicksand, um, which makes it really fun, but it also means that you don't know what job you're going to want in five years. Quite frankly, if you're thinking about one specific opportunity you want in five years, then you're selling yourself short because the job you really want probably doesn't exist yet. Mm -hmm. So I would, again, turn this question around a little bit and say, you know, in five years, I want to be in a role that is satisfying, that feels challenging, where I'm grappling with something that feels hard, but also gratifying and motivating, but I don't know what that is yet because I don't know what the big challenges are going to be in five years. I think it's perfectly reasonable to ask this question in a shorter term. I think I always want to know whether it's in an interview or just in a review with the people on my team, where do you want to be in six months? Mm -hmm. Where do you want to be in 18 months? Because we can track toward that. That's where you set a tangible goal of like, I want to be in this role or I want to know this thing and I need to have built these like three skills in order to get there. So let's work on that together. Yeah, and media probably isn't realistic no. to say we're going to be in five years. It's interesting. So we've talked about this a few times in the podcast and, and I would say all of the guests we talked to basically have the same opinion in terms of like, you just don't know. How can you know? The industry is changing so much. And I've heard from people listeners of the podcast who've gone to interviews and still get asked this question and have used that answer of like, well, you know, the industry's changing and it's been, it's been a success. So (laughs) you didn't know there was a right or wrong answer, but there was, and you got it right. And you got it right. So we also 
like to ask our guests these like curveball questions. So the trend, and I, I don't know if you do anything like that here, the trend to a lot of companies, m- more technology companies, but also media companies is that they ask these weird interview questions that seemingly have nothing to do with your job. Very personal. Yeah, or... personal or like very abstract, which is one of the little bit that abstract. Today's question is from Quora. In their interviews, they ask, what are you known for? I'm known for being a perfectionist and working too hard. <laughs> no, I I'm known for where I want to be in five years. <laughs> um, what am I known for? I mean, I hope that I'm known for solving problems. I hope that I'm known as someone who works hard and leads in a really positive, focused way and ultimately drives creative solutions. That's what I hope I'm known for. That's great. That's a great answer. That those would be great. I mean, problem solving is something that is just so vital, and I think it's not weighted appropriately in the workplace, like as a skill. That's interesting. I think it's the number one quality. I mean, when I think about the number, like it's competency of the job you're being hired for, and then it's probably the capacity to be a team player and to get excited about our mission and attach on to the work that we're doing. And then I think it's like number three for me is a tie between clarity of thought and the capacity to solve problems, to find creative solutions. Because I think getting back to this idea that media is changing every day, the only way to really get ahead is to have a company filled with people who are excited to tackle the problems that sort of bubble up, that feel new and different every day. You have to have that metabolism to want to tackle new challenges and find new ways of looking at things that people haven't tried before. If you're not doing that, then you're coming in, you're cashing a paycheck, you're doing your job, but you're not really advancing the work. It's really, we, you know, I don't necessarily think of that as like a skill set that I um, focus on problem solving, but I think it is like so important. Like just, I mean, you see this, I'm sure in the workplace, I see it a lot where it's just like a problem arises and there's like freak out. Like right. massive freak out and there's not, and eventually everything gets solved, honestly, like barely does something not get solved. But I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have said I'm a problem solver, but I do always focus on like, okay, let's skip the freak out. Let's just like get to the, the end result. And then. Right. What's the, what's the thing we're solving right. for and what does, what does good look like at the right. end of this? And then let's do the stuff in the middle that like is just tactical. Right. Um, and I mean, creative, but tactical, right? I think as long as you can identify, okay, this is the actual problem and this is the desired state, if you will, that we want to be in, then it's just a matter of saying, okay, well, nothing is impossible. No, it's great. I think it's really, really good. I think it's important to think about that. And I think if I was interviewing someone and they talked about that as a key skill, I'd be very impressed. I'm very impressed with you. Thank you. In general, you got the job. You definitely got the job. You knew like all the right answers. We have reached our lightning round. I am going to just throw some things out for quick answers. Just say the first thing that comes to your head. So the best job you've ever had? This one. I've been here for a long time. I mean, I've learned so much here. And the office is really cool. Right? Guys, if you can check this out, Refiner29, you should get here. Um, Worst job you've ever had? doesn't have to be immediate. Yeah. It could be... The worst job I ever had was working in the Banana Republic in Palmer Square in Princeton. I held that job for a grand total of 1.5 <laughs> months. Um, I worked approximately three hours a week, um, and I spent so much more than <laughs> I made. 
in my three hours a week on clothes at Banana Republic because I got a discount. And who can who can fight the allure of the resist, discount? Who can resist? Clothes at Banana Republic are not really cut for my body type, so none of them look all that great on me. So you had discounted bad clothes, clothes that fit poorly, right? And you were in debt that didn't fit well that I couldn't really afford that negated the value of the job. Oh, that's that's good. I thought you were going to say you lasted one point five days. So I'm impressed. One point five months. Five months. But you know, when you're only working three hours a week, they eventually they're like, no thanks. Right. <laughs> I'm like, that's not that's that's not that much time. What's the best career advice you've ever received? Lighting round. Um, Hard. The lighting round's tough. It's tough. Um, there, I've gotten so much good advice over the years, but I do think it's actually that point of it's not enough just to put your head down and work hard. Because I think working hard is my default state, but it's look up, figure out where you can add value, and also broadcast that. I think that there is there is sometimes a hesitance, and I see this more among women than men, to say, hey, I did that awesome thing. Did everyone see that? Because I want to make sure that everyone knew. And there's a difference between bragging and making sure people understand the value of your work. And that has always been a tough lesson for me, but I think it's a really important one. And I had a manager a long time ago who was like, you need to be better about making sure that the value of your work is seen and known. No one's going to do it for you. It's really interesting to me, the whole this whole concept of like bragging, sharing, showing off. Because in the era of social media, really all we're doing all the time is bragging. Like that's all we're doing all the time. So you're sharing and like, it's totally socially acceptable and it's not gross or crass. Like it's just, I mean, that's essentially what it is though. Like I always think about when, when I see posts, like what is someone thinking when they're posting this? Why do they want other people to see it? Like I'm way too psychological about it. I should just like not think about it. But I, I, I'm really interested in just in general in terms of a concept. And it's like, it's so funny to me that we are in this culture, but still in the workplace, and especially, I think you are, I think it really is, especially women. I mean, of course, many men fall into this category as well. And many women don't, you know, don't have an issue with this, but it really, we are not putting ourselves out there in terms of like, look what I accomplished, look what I did. And it's weird, like you, I would say you probably are putting yourself out there on social media. If you get a promotion, you're sharing it with your friends and your community. But you're not, like, in the workplace putting that out to the people who are the ones who are going to make the decisions, you know, right. the work that you're doing, what's good. It's kind of, it's such a weird dynamic. Yes. And it's, I mean, it's funny because, like, on social media, you're, what you're thinking usually is how do I want people to perceive me? What right. is the shiniest, most impressive, dazzling version of myself that I can share in little snippets and snapshots? It makes me look amazing. So why wouldn't you apply that to your professional life? There's actually a great YouTube talk um, by Carla Harris called Carla's Pearls of Wisdom, I think. At least that's her central thesis. And she talks about perception a lot. How do you get people to perceive you in the way that you want to be perceived? Um, and this is something that our chief content officer, Amy Emmerich, actually showed me. And we talk about this all the time. How do you want to be perceived in the workplace? What are your three adjectives? How can you think about them all the time? But also, how can you find sort of a circle of other men and women who are sponsoring you, mentoring you, supporting you, your peers? It's great to be thinking about it. I think, you know, we talk about like personal brand and it feels so overwhelming to like create your personal brand. But if you're just like, what are the three adjectives that... Is easy. That's an, that's an easy exercise to do without having to feel like you have to do a huge project and like exactly. how you're going to project yourself. You don't have to build your brand architecture. Just come up with three words. 
I love that. I'm going to do that. That's my, my project for this weekend. My small exercise for this weekend. Amazing. Neha, thank you so much for being on our podcast. I had so much fun talking to you. Oh, I had the best time. Thank you for having me. This was a delight. You give such good advice and have such a unique uh, view on so many things, so many career topics. We really appreciate you sharing that with our audience. Thank you. Thank you. Where can we find you on social media? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram, probably most consistently. Um, same handle. It's Neha, N-E-H-A, in town, as inspired by Oscar Wilde's Ernest in town. <laughs> I was like, you have to explain your handle. Okay, good. But nobody ever gets that. <laughs> that is the handle, though. That's good. Easy to remember. Yes. Easy to remember. And I will say, Neha is a wonderful Instagrammer. I really enjoy following Instagram. That is high praise. I really do. <laughs> and I don't enjoy following everyone. Um, but you, you just have a unique view in the world. Interesting things happen in your life. You're great at stories. That's something I get. Yeah. I, I, I want to really been enjoying stories in a big way. I need a lesson on like stories because I understand them, but I just don't like know when to, my brain doesn't turn on to do yeah. the story at the right time. And then it's always too late. So yeah. follow Neha. I would highly recommend it. Um, thanks again for your time. You can learn more about this podcast by going to nywici.org. That's the New York Women in Communications website slash podcast. Or you can follow New York Women in Communications at nywici. Also, we would love if you would rate and review us on iTunes. We really appreciate you listening. It's been a very exciting time for us, and we'd love to hear what you think. You've been listening to Coffee Break with New York Wiki. Thank you to our amazing team. Our producers, Kylie Harris, Chelsea Orcutt, and Chrisanne Grise. Our editors, Aaron Mathewson and Chelsea Orcutt. Rachel Bowie manages marketing. Alex Fetter wrote the theme. Additional recording and editing has been done at Stoosh Studios with the help of Steve Francis. For more information about Coffee Break with New York Wiki, go to nywici.org slash podcast. I'm your host, Julie Hockheiser-Ilkovich. Thank you for listening.